Thank you for downloading this edition of the Wings Museum podcast. Time has flown by since our last programme, and work at the museum continues apace. The various restoration projects are the primary focus of many of our volunteers, with the B-25 Mitchell Bedsheet Bomber and the Hawker Kestrel probably foremost amongst them. We hope to have a full catch-up from the workshop in a podcast soon. Since last year, we have been pleased to welcome into the museum many, many visitors, young and old, some coming as members of groups or with their school, others keen to spend a reflective few hours browsing the displays on their own. One group that enjoys meeting friends and bringing their military vehicles to the museum is the Invicta Military Vehicle Preservation Society, known as IMPS, and later we'll be talking to a couple of their number about the vehicles that they have brought along. We'll also be hearing about part of the Short Brothers Seaplane Factory in Rochester in Kent and the many thousand strong workforce that was protected from the Luftwaffe bombing of the area by going underground. But first, we always enjoy listening to the stories told by wartime veterans and I hope that they enjoy sharing them. Monty Felton was a navigator in the RAF, flying in Halifax bombers on over 30 missions. Speaking with Gary Italiander at Bentley Priory, Monty started by reminding us of the basic principles of aviation navigation and remembering the training that he received from the RAF. Many of you probably understand if you want to fly from here to here, you can't just point the aeroplane because once an aircraft gets airborne, there's wind and the wind carries the aeroplane just in the same way as if you're rowing a boat, the tide carries the boat. So the essence of navigation is you have to work out once you know, or once the meteorological people have advised you as to what the direction and strength of the wind is, you have to work out what course the pilot should fly in order to get where you want to get to. Um, Later on, of course, when you were actually operating in the RAF, um, you never flew to a target straight there. You always flew dog legs. The principle being that if you flew dog legs, the German defences didn't know what the target was. Apart from learning navigation, um, the other thing that we were taught was to get really fit. We used to be taken on long runs, which finished up by us all jumping into the sea, Um, We marched at a much quicker pace than normal and believe me, we did get fit. So we were supposed to be perfectly fit for the purpose ahead. The ridiculous part was that once we left the initial training wing and we were perfectly fit, we never did any exercise after (laughs) that. The result was that by the time we got into a bomber, we were worse off than when we started. (laughs) Monty, can I ask you what uh, sort of planes you flew in in your training? After we finished at Torquay, we were sent 
I correct this, I was sent to an airfield in Bishop's Court in Northern Ireland. Why I was sent there, I don't know, because the majority of would-be aircrew air crew, trained either in Canada or in what was then Southern Rhodesia. But for some reason, they sent me to Bishop's Court. Bishop's Court was an airfield with Ansons, two-engine Ansons, and they were getting, up, getting a bit old, but they were quite, quite airworthy. Um, the first time I travelled as a navigator in an Anson, which was a local trip around Northern Ireland to the Isle of Man and so on, the first time I flew, I distinguished myself by being sick. <laughs> um, we had quite a nice time in Northern Ireland because, for example, there was a big store in Belfast which we used to visit. We used to go there for lunch, which consisted of roast turkey and all the trimmings. And then we used to go back for tea, which consisted of roast chicken and chips. <laughs> I finished the course at Bishop's Court. I did about 100 hours flying altogether there. And when I'd finished, my logbook was marked a well above average navigator. In reflection, because people mainly wanted to be pilots and so navigators were a bit short, uh, I rather suspect that perhaps most of the blokes on the course were all appointed well above average navigators. <laughs> when I finished at Bishop's Court, I was then posted to an airfield in Kinloss in Scotland and there we flew um, Whitley's, which were old two-engine bombers. Uh, they were known as the Flying Coffin because that was the shape of the fuselage. One thing I did learn at Kinloss is that a navigator was never lost. When you were flying, perhaps you were doing a cross-country trip, it sometimes got a little bit awkward um, and you weren't too sure. A navigator was never lost. He was sometimes uncertain of his exact position. <laughs> <laughs> Um, one thing we did do at Kinloss, which was a bit horrendous, they had a um, simulator there. And you went into the simulator, sat on a desk, just as though you were in an aircraft. They had the aircraft noise on. You had to do a trip. And the only difficult bit was there was a clock there, and the clock ran at double time, so you really had to work. 
Okay. Um, can I ask when you first flew the Halifax? Did yes, you Did indeed. you do that in your training? Or was yes. That... When I left Kinloss, I was posted to an airfield in Yorkshire called Ruffworth. And this was our introduction to a four-engine uh, four bomber, the Halifax. I should mention in passing that the Halifax was treated as the poor relation of the Lancaster. If, for example, you asked 50 people what fighter plane flew in the Battle of Britain, 49 would tell you the Spitfire. Perhaps the odd one would tell you the Hurricane. And the Hurricane did exactly the same job. And the same happened with us. We flew in the Halifax. Everybody, speaking of Bomber Command, spoke of the Lancaster. Unfortunately, there's no Halifax available to fly. Um, the only Halifax is the one at the RAF Museum that's full of rust. Um, we were then sent on what was called a bullseye. The bullseye was a trip which didn't count as an op, an operation, but was a flight which had the purpose of misleading the Germans as to where we were going. And we did the bullseye, came back, and then the mainstream took off. We then left Ruffeth, and we came to Melbourne, which was number 10 squadron, a very early squadron of the Air Force, which was the squadron where we operated from. When, can I just ask, when you, when you actually arrived at the place where you were going to be operating from, was, did that become your base for all of the operations you it did? It was indeed. The first thing that happened on Mel at Melbourne was we had to crew up. You see, so far I'd only dealt with navigators, but we all met up at Melbourne, pilots, engineers, gunners, bomb aimers, and the purpose was to find people that we liked to make a crew. I saw a chap, a pilot, who I thought seemed to look a nice, capable bloke. I said to him, have you got a navigator? He said, no. So he and I were the beginnings of a crew. However, it didn't quite work that way, because the next day I was called to wherever, and I was told, you're not flying with him, you are navigator to a man called George Dark, and you will be joining this crew. And it was indeed a rather special crew. George Dark was a man of about 33. He'd never been on ops, but he was a very experienced flyer, and uh, he had been instructing. Two others of the crew were chaps who were starting their second tour of operations, 
uh, the bomb aimer was a Czech man who I think came from some aristocracy and was spoke better English than anybody else. And my rear gunner trained in, in Canada and was obviously top of his class because he was given a commission straight away. And indeed, he was the only commissioned member of the crew. Uh, so we had this special crew and we had no choice. This was the crew that I was going to fly with. Monty, with the, um, when you first arrived at, this, at, the, at the place for the operations, what sort of number of people were there that you would have had, although you were put in a crew, that would have um, the choice of people? How many people would have been based there? I think there were three flights with about a 10, 12 aircraft to each flight. Um, but of course, when there's an operation, uh, by no means all of those aircraft took place. You probably get, if there was a call for a raid, you probably get perhaps 10, 12 aircraft altogether who were concerned. And in that connection, your question prompts a thought, Gary. If there was a 12 aircraft, if you were the first aircraft to take off, you had to circle while the other 11 would took off because you all had to start at the same time, which was a bit of a fag, but there it is. That's the way it worked. So we then started operating as a bomber crew. Uh, I won't bore you with a list of all the various targets we went to. I would mention, however, that the targets that we most frequently visited was the Ruhr. The Ruhr was a very heavy industrial area of Germany and a great deal of um, in industrial and engineering works carried on there. We went to Essen a couple of times, to Duisburg a couple of times, to Bochum. And we also went to Dortmund. Uh, in this connection, my son, who for his sins is a great Tottenham Hotspur supporter. He and a few chums of his went to Dortmund some months ago because Tottenham were playing football there. And I told my son Joe, look, take care of yourself, but if you get round to chatting any of the local people, don't tell them your dad was here 77 years <laughs> Funnily enough, before leaving the question of the Ruhr, um, I heard a long time ago, well, within a year or two, there was a chap who took part on the um, mastermind program on BBC. And his specialist, 
specialist subject, would you believe it, was Bomber Command. He'd obviously researched the subject very carefully um, and he had answers to questions that I'd never even heard of. But one question he didn't know the answer to, and I did. <laughs> he was asked, what was the name given to the cities in the Ruhr which were bombed? He didn't know, but I did. The name the RAF gave this area was Happy Valley. Some of you may even be aware of this. Other raids we made here, there, Hamburg, Hanover, lots of different places. But one raid in particular I'd like to tell you about. We were due to go one evening to Dusseldorf. We took off and as soon as we got airborne, our starboard outer engine packed up. Now, if you were halfway to the target, you would continue. As we used to say, press on regardless. You could continue on three engines pretty happily, but you wouldn't start a bomber raid on three engines. And the procedure then was that you flew out to the North Sea about 70 miles, dropped, dropped your bum load, and then came back to base. We did this. We flew out 70 miles, dropped our load, turned round, and promptly lost our starboard inner engine. So we were then flying on two engines, both on the same side, which was difficult. Now, we had a very good pilot, and he managed. But that's not the end of the story. When we came back, we, de uh, we decided that obviously we wouldn't go to base and let try to land on two engines. So we went to an airfield called Carnaby, now, there were three places on the east of the UK. One was Manston in Kent, one was Woodbridge in Suffolk, and one was, was Carnaby, where there were no aircraft, but they had very long and very wide runways. So if a plane was coming back from a raid and was in trouble, it would head to one of these airfields and have a much better chance of landing without too much trouble. So I plotted a course to Carnaby and as we were approaching Carnaby, and I hope you will believe me when I tell you that I'm not making this up, when we got near to Carnaby, my pilot said, look, we could land here, but I think we'll get back to base because I've got a dental appointment tomorrow. <laughs> so I then plotted a course back to base. 
our people could see that we were coming in with only two engines working and we landed and fortunately my pilot made a good job. When we came in to land, the station ambulance and the station fire engine was waiting for us, but thank God they weren't needed. One other thing that I'll mention in general terms, during the latter, latter part of the war, Pathfinder Force was formed. What the Pathfinders did is they flew to the, to the target, laid flares, and then that enabled the main bomber force to know where to drop their bombs. But of course, like anything else, Bomber Command were faced by Germans who were not idiots, and it became a bit of a game of cat and mouse because the Germans used to also light flares in open fields quite away from the target. So we did our best. I'll mention one final thing, if, final thing if I may. Pathfinder Force was led by Leonard Cheshire. Cheshire did about a hundred trips and he was awarded the VC, and he most certainly deserved it. Thank you to Monty Felton, Gary Italiander, and Bentley Priory Museum. And for more of Monty's story, and to watch the whole of the talk, visit bentleypriorymuseum.org.uk. The link will be on this episode's page on the Wings Museum website. Now, when Oswald Short, the sole surviving brother of the Short Brothers aviation manufacturers, had doubts about the efficacy of the Munich Agreement in 1938 and foresaw that there was likely to be a war with Germany, he devised plans to take parts of his Rochester factory and its workforce underground, into the chalk banks that descend to the River Medway. Over 80 years later, those tunnels still exist and, over the Easter weekend, I was lucky enough to be invited for a tour. My name is Steve Quinton. I'm one of the guides of the Schultz Tunnels Complex at Rochester in Kent. And today you've been showing around a group of underground enthusiasts. <laughs> yes, uh, I have. I've taken a tour of 20-odd uh, people around from uh, Subterranea Britannica, who uh, I'm, funnily enough, also a member of. And uh, it's to show them the total complex, or the underground complex, of the Shorts factory tunnels from wartime. Now, Shorts manufactured aircraft, balloons, all sorts. What, what, what were they doing down here? Well, basically they started off at the turn of the century making balloons, etc., up in Vauxhall, in one of the viaduct arches there. They then expanded and their, their first major site was down on Sheppey. Subsequently, they built this place from about 1915, based on the research that I've seen and found. And down in the factory end of the tunnels, they built anything that was sensitive to uh, bombing, basically. So things like altimeters, compasses, anything like that that was really sensitive and couldn't afford to be damaged, they made it in the underground part of the factory down here. 
this end where we currently are was mainly for the workforce as air raid shelters. The total workforce of Shorts was in wartime around 11,000 people based over a couple of shifts. So uh, during an air raid you would be at least 6,000 people in the shelters down here, if not more. I mean, that's quite significant. I mean, we've had a, a good walk around. I mean, there's, what, a, a couple of miles of tunnel? Yeah, you've got approximately three kilometres of tunnels if you add up all the, the little blind tunnels and all the blocked-in entrances. We do approximately just over three quarters, so you're seeing most of it. We do point out all the graffiti from wartime that's on the walls. There's lots of it, isn't there? Oh, there is yeah. horrendous amounts of it. You could just fill a book or several books just on that. Yeah. I've been doing these tours now for about 15 years, and I can truthfully say every time I come down, I spot another piece that I've never seen before and uh, I've recorded or taken pictures of. Mm. I mean, some of it isn't wartime, of course. Some of it is from misuse, let's politely say, of people coming in when they shouldn't have been. That's very correct. So you'll see a lot of directional signs where people have sprayed on the walls. Uh, in certain parts of the tunnels, you'll also find lengths of string so that they can trace themselves back out. Yeah, but, very Hansel and Gretel. Yeah, <laughs> fortunately. But the, the tunnels are in incredibly good condition considering their, their wartime. They're mainly built of engineering brick and uh, in the air raid shelter parts, it's corrugated iron. The factory end is all to brickwork and they're big enough to drive a vehicle around yeah. uh, if you so wished. Mm. But that was where all of the, the heavy machinery was stored. And when you walk up to uh, about halfway up the long tunnel to the factory, you start smelling that heavy engineering smell. Mm. Uh, very distinctive, isn't it? Very distinctive. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, it's good. Yeah. And in, in, in this bit we're at now, fairly near the entrance to where we've come in, obviously not big enough to get trucks in and out or any other bigger bits. The tunnels we can see, when we came in, you described the fact that the, the edges on the ground are sort of messed up a little bit. Tell us what that was again. Well, that was the, uh, the bench seating. Both sides of the tunnels, you have uh, bench seating. Now, certainly this end, they've grubbed all of that out because after the war, um, supplies of timber, metalwork was all in very, very short supply. So if it could be used elsewhere, then it was, it was grubbed out. We still have remnants of that back up at the uh, the factory end of the framework coming out from the walls, which is our intention to do a, um, a reconstruction of that to give someone an idea of what it looks like. But these were actually independent benches in the section where we are now. So if people want to find out a little bit more about this place and of course perhaps even come on a future tour because I know that uh, you're, you want people to see it but you want to be a bit reluctant about letting people in <laughs> when they shouldn't be in, uh, I mean how should people go about that? Right, well they can arrange a trip via Subterranea Britannica. The guys there on the committee uh, know my details and our contact details, hence the trip down today. For more on the Shorts Tunnels, and Subterranea Britannica, go to subbrit.org.uk.
Again, the links will be on this episode's page of the Wings Museum website. Finally for this episode, a sunny Sunday morning saw the arrival at the museum of more than a dozen military vehicles. After their drivers had had a chance to look around the museum, we caught up with a couple of them for a chat. My name's Ross Savage. I'm uh, currently chairman of IMPS, which is the Invicta Military Vehicle Preservation Society. We're a club of about 900 members. Wow. And um, today we've just got to run out of vehicles because we all enjoy driving our vehicles and uh, coming to support something like the Wings Museum as well. And the fact that you've come here today, you're a regional part of the organisation, yes? Yes, we're primarily uh, based in the southeast, hence the, the uh, word Invicta, which yep, obviously the, the... reflects on Kent yep. and everything. But the club's been going for over 40 years now, so we've got members all over the world, basically, oh. but primarily down here. But we are looking to sort of uh, stretch our wings a little bit. I've just got a new area of secretary starting in Thames Valley, so that's going to open up another area and everything. So, yeah, it's good. It's good. Yeah. So, so what else do you get up to? You, you come here today? Yeah. Well, primarily the thing is keeping the wheels turning, I say. So <laughs> ensuring that we keep Literally these vehicles... Literally otherwise, yeah, yeah. Keeping these vehicles on the road. They all have a story and that. But making use of them. And here we are, 2023. You know, some of these vehicles are getting on for 80 years old now. But one of the things I do with mine is that um, I actually help out down at the Goodwood Revival. So well. that, that's three days down there ferrying people around. Lovely. And the Jeep's just the best thing in the world to do it in, you know. And everybody Particularly likes... with some of the weather at the revival well, over the years, okay. yes. It, it ha- can be mixed, it can be mixed. <laughs> and if it is inclement, a Jeep is the only thing that will get around the fields, you know. Very true, so very that's true. Good. But no, I, I think um, the whole thing about the hobby, as I say, is to keep the vehicles going. So that may be restoring... Personally, I love just driving the vehicle and, and going places and, and making good use of it. So we're standing next to your vehicle. Tell us a bit more about it. Well, this is a, a 1943 Willis. Interesting history a little bit because when it was restored a, few, a good few years ago, we found a data plate on the rear chassis, which was uh, La Montagne. And this was the French Remy workshops just south of Paris and uh, where some things would have been updated on it and everything. So that leads us on to the fact that this was possibly uh, a Lend-Lease vehicle. Mm. was made up because the, the French had no vehicles after the war, so the Americans gave them 500 Jeeps in pieces. So they made them up, and then, of course, American guy Hodgkiss came along, got the licence from Willis and Ford to start uh, replicating them, and the story goes on. But 1943, so they, they made them first and then put them together... Latterly, is that what you mean? No, 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 they were all bits and pieces, basically. So, mm. so the whole thing about a Jeep and most vehicles of that time was that all the parts were interchangeable. So whether it was a Willis or was it a Ford, every bit fitted either. So if something broke, you just took it off a broken Jeep and you kept that Jeep on the road. So under the sort of the Lend-Lease arrangements, they got loads of Jeeps that were in bits and pieces and everything and said, go away and make them up, which right. is what they did. Yeah. So um, I presume that makes it slightly easier to keep them on the road now as well then? Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you've got quite a few here today, presumably relatively interchangeable parts and easy all, to find. All absolutely interchangeable and everything. There's, there's a lot of what we used to call new old stock, which was, you know, stuff from the old days and everything. That's getting a lot harder to find now certain parts gearbox parts things like that can get a bit more difficult but um, a bit like a VW Beetle lots of stuff's been replicated so there's no reason why you shouldn't stay on the road this is badged up as uh, an English Jeep 
and again just out of interest all jeeps were made in america some people don't necessarily understand that <laughs> but all the jeeps that were used by the british army to conform with the road traffic act at the time got to be british haven't you yeah, so we had to run with side lights so butler side lights and then the rear diff was painted white for convoy work right. and that's the only two subtle differences between a GI's Jeep and a Squaddy's Jeep. So uh, the rear diff painted white just to stop the idiots going in the back yeah, of each other. Yeah, just a bit of reflection <laughs> and things like that, you know. But, but otherwise it's saying, and, and all left-hand drive. I didn't make any right-hand drive. I guess, again, that does help with the interchangeable parts yes, thing, doesn't it? Yes, You, you don't yeah. want to sort of get the wrong way around. No, no, absolutely. So we've got a good turnout here today. I think probably 16, 16 17 Jeeps. So, you know, after the rain yesterday... Yes. People aren't afraid to bring these out. I mean, the sun uh, is just coming out now, so it'd be a nicer drive home, yeah, perhaps. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, but there's so many things you can do with these Jeeps, and that's probably why they're as expensive as they are, because you can keep them in an ordinary garage. You don't need special facilities. The average mechanic can do most things on them, so it's great fun. But no other things we do, obviously, we go over to France. We have tours over at France. Um, we're over there in September. We've got the big sort of five-year anniversary of Normandy coming up in 2024. We've got something like over 200 vehicles already booked on that trip, and I'm sure there'll be more people added to it. And that's a whole week, so you really get into the atmosphere and everything. I mean, are people sort of there just to use their vehicles, or is the remembrance side no, of it it's, as important? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Uh, probably more important, actually. Oh, yeah. you know. But it's all part of it, and... Um, you know, when I go to France, the thing I love is the, the respect that the French have, A, for what the English did during the war, and also that we'll still go over there, even though they're continuously putting up barriers these days, <laughs> well, and I'm glad I'm not travelling to France this weekend. <laughs> yes, you could still be in Dover waiting, <laughs> yes, couldn't you? Yes, yes <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, we, you don't have to be um, a vehicle owner to join IMPS. We welcome anybody, so we've got members who've got bicycles or anything. So uh, just come and be part of it. Bicycles were used in the war. Absolutely, <laughs> we know that, don't we? absolutely. Yeah, but yeah, we we like to think of ourselves as the the friendliest uh, military vehicle club out there, and uh, you know, coming out and exploring things. And I think it's great. It's a great turnout today, and yeah. yeah, beginning of April, the season starts going after Easter and everything. So looking forward to it. Having had sort of two years closed down with COVID. People started getting back into it last year, but I think this year or really... We, we all feel we're released yeah, again. Yes. Yeah, yeah. so that'll be great. But um, we're very grateful for the museum in allowing us to come down and meet up here and everything. Have you been before? Yes. There's lots of friendly faces, I noticed today, despite the fact this is theoretically a different group to the previous group. <laughs> yeah. The same faces come out, and it's nice that people are wanting to come back and, oh, absolutely. and, and see things again, and yeah. of course just yeah. have a get-together. When I visited this museum for the first time, was it still at Red Hill? Oh, right. <laughs> and then somebody corrected me when I came last year and said that was over seven or eight years ago if not even longer. I think a bit longer. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, but it's, it's lovely to come back and see what you've done here and also your plans for the future at Dunsfold. So we look forward to that very much and, um, you know, keep it going. My name's Paul Robbins. I'm the area secretary of the Wheeled Area of Imps. We had three vehicles come down today from Biggin Hill in Kent after a very pleasant breakfast this morning. <laughs> the vehicle I'm in today is a 1952 standard 1200 weight pickup. The RAF had thousands of these from sort of 1947 
and they were stayed in service until sort of 1960, 63-ish. As far as we know, there's one in the Duxford Imperial War Museum. Mm-hmm. A friend of ours has another one that's pending restoration that's a bit older than this, and this is the only one that's now left on the road, which makes it a... Love, I love it to bits. I love <laughs> it's certainly it to bits. special, isn't it? It's, a, it, it? it's one of these things that has that look to it that certainly from the front, and then you look at the back and it's quite a surprise, I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard it described as a cute ute. Yes. Um, so we've tried to find out the history of this vehicle, i.e., where it served with the RAF, you know, whether it was overseas ever, whether it was just in storage, mm. and unfortunately, none of the RAF records um, have, have survived. So given that it lives in Biggin Hill, it's garaged in Biggin Hill, we've badged it as a fighter command Biggin Hill vehicle. That's, it, it, uh, exactly. it, gives it, it says Biggin Hill on the side, Indeed. literally says it on the tin. <laughs> <laughs> Were you involved with the restoration of it or, or has it been relatively uh, well all these years? It had a very light restoration, sort of 2002 to 2005-ish, but structurally pretty much everything you see is original. Um, there's quite a few nice touches on it which help identify as RAF. So underneath the bonnet, there's a lubrication and electrical chart. Um, on the doors that you can't see, obviously, from here. Um, <laughs> Not on the podcast. <laughs> um, it says maximum, maximum speed and maximum number of occupants. Mm-hmm. And then in the back, it's got a maximum number of six people seated in the back. <laughs> that, well, yes. Co- cozy and drafty, I think, are the two words that spring to mind there. But uh, for, for all purposes, literally an all-purpose vehicle. Yeah, I, I, I mean, looking at it, obviously the RAF used it for various purposes around the, the RAF stations, and but there's there's really not that much room in the back for it to cart mm. stuff around, and certainly for carrying people around, it would have been dang uncomfortable. <laughs> um, it should it should have a, a sort of a, 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 a tilt on the back, sort of canvas cover that would uh, be sort of you know four to eighteen inches higher than the top of the cab and yes then you could get maybe a little bit more stuff in it but it's it's not a big vehicle by any stretch of the imagination. Presumably it's across an airfield kind of travel rather than across a country kind of travel for for, for people in the back anyway. Yes absolutely absolutely but no a a lovely lovely vehicle unique on the road I absolutely love it to bits. Mm. And are are they easy to keep going? I mean parts and things I mean I was speaking about the jeeps interchangeable parts you know, li- literally new for old, probably still on a shelf somewhere. Body parts are uh, completely unobtainable. Uh, this this structure is very good. Um, I've had standard vanguards now for just over 40 years, so I've got a very, very, very good supply of parts as and when anything goes wrong. Um, so, yes, I'm, in my stores, I can literally go in and get stuff off the shelf as and when wheel cylinders, cylinder heads, horns, etc. Yeah. give up the ghost. And do they? Rarely, I think. Rarely, yet. Presumably it's not being used and they're not wearing out. No, I mean, we've taken it to various D-Day commemorations over the last uh, last sort of nine or ten years or so. That's That's been good. Um, but no, it, it doesn't get a great deal of use. Um, sort of 15, I would guess, sort of 1,500 miles a year or something like that. So. Still not bad going. But yeah. what, what kind of engine, what kind of size are we talking about? Okay, so it's a 2.1 litre straight four petrol. Yeah, very standard. Very, very standard. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, looking inside it, it looks like it's virtually just the dashboard of a car. It's, yeah, the, the front end, what you sit in, is identical to the, the saloons of the period, or nearest damn it, identical. It's only from the only from the sort of the driver and the passenger backwards that it, it, it's any 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 different. Mm. Um, Three-speed column change. The saloons of the period had overdrive options, but the uh, this one, the RF, never specified overdrive, so it's never had it. So it stayed stock as a three-speed overdrive, which limits the speed to about 45, 50 miles an hour. 
which is presumably the right kind of speed for the time and the vehicle. Absolutely. I mean, it, it, yes, it, it sounds like nothing now to us, perhaps, but uh, I mean, certainly all the Jeeps we're standing next to are probably 40 miles an hour indeed. comfortable, aren't they? Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Yeah. No, lovely. Thank you very much indeed. Yeah, no, it's just, what else is in the collection? What else can you tell me about? Because if, if they're all like this, this is great. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I've got, I've, got, I've got a number of other Sander Vanguards as well. Um, obviously, this is the pickup. We've got an estate car, I've got saloons, got a van as well. So, yeah, this, uh, they're, they're, they're all, I say all the running gear is all much of a match. Mm. So, yeah, it's nice and, it's not, it's nice and easy for, for that from that perspective. And it's what you've specialised in, as it were, over the well, years? I, I or fallen it, into? <laughs> yeah, it's fallen into more than anything else, indeed, yes. For more about IMPS, take a look at their website, imps.org.uk. And if you'd like to visit the museum with your car club, whatever the type, it doesn't have to be camouflaged and capable off-road, do get in touch. All of the details, along with much more, are on the Wings Museum website, wingsmuseum.co.uk.